Hi, welcome to episode seven of my podcast. Thank you for listening. It occurred to me to mention that I've been saying in these intros that this is a journey across the whole of Central America, which isn't strictly true because in fact we didn't visit El Salvador. That's the one country we didn't get to see um, in the whole of Central America. And I just thought I should mention it in case anyone's annoyed that, uh, that it's getting left out or anything. Uh, the only reason we didn't make it there, it was just a question of we were traveling on such a tight budget at this point and we were really rushing through this this final stretch of the journey and trying to just hit the places that were absolutely top of our list. So there's in this in this particular part of Central America, the focus is really on the archaeological sites because we were so kind of fascinated by those. So we hit all the major ones of those through Guatemala and Honduras and there was also an awful lot that we wanted to see in Nicaragua so uh, at that point El Salvador would have been a slight detour out of the way Um, and as we were really trying to save as much money as possible we didn't make the detour and we continued straight from Honduras on to Nicaragua. So in this episode we will see the really famous archaeological site of Copan in Honduras and also um, visit another much smaller and more remote archaeological site where we got to see something really incredible that was a really that's a really cherished memory of mine so I hope you enjoy here we go the next morning we caught an early bus to Santa Cruz del Quiche the town isn't that pretty but it acts as the transportation hub for the whole of the Quiche region and has some ruins just outside it where Maya ceremonies sometimes take place I'd also read about the tunnel in the ruins in Time Among the Maya. Um, That was a book I was reading at the time, which was all about the way in which when uh, the Spanish colonised this part of the world, a lot of the Maya religious traditions kind of went underground. Um, They kind of continued in secret, but were also kind of in certain ways merged and blended with Catholicism to create a whole kind of new thing. The main theme of the book is kind of Uh, discussing how much pre-Hispanic culture managed to survive the Spanish conquests. I'd read about the tunnel in the ruins in Time Among the Maya and had been quite taken with Wright's description of it. Our guidebook made the three-kilometre hike to the ruins sound very difficult, asked for directions frequently, it had said. But in fact, we pretty much followed one road without any turn-offs or difficulties. We passed numerous fields and mud-brick houses. The atmosphere wasn't as friendly as in San Martin Chile Verde, but it wasn't unfriendly either. Just fewer people greeted us as we walked. The sun was hot and the land very dry. Cacti reminded me of being in Mexico. We soon reached the archaeological site, which was pleasantly situated among fresh-smelling pine woods. We paid our entrance fee at the visitor centre and asked if it was possible to see the tunnel. The custodian replied, of course, but we admitted that we had no torch with us. As we looked around the small information area where there was a large and impressive scale model of the site as it would have been, he found us two small and dusty candles. We wandered over into the site which was totally unrestored. Grassy ledges and mounds showed where the important city used to stand. But what caught our attention the most were smoke-blackened niches in each of the three main ruined temple mounds. They were also dripping with wax and clearly the site of frequent Maya ceremonies. In the centre of the great plaza was a stone circle blackened by fire of the same type we'd seen all over Tikal. We picked a spot under the shade of a tree to sit and have our breakfast papaya. It was lovely to be alone with the pine tree smell, the birds and the once grand city. The trees were particularly atmospheric as they were covered in great swathes of Spanish moss which hung like long grey beards and swayed gently in the breeze. As we were finishing our papaya, we were slightly dismayed to see a large group of about 25 people entering the site. 
Oh no, look at these dickheads, said Richard. I said, don't speak too soon, they might be here to do a ceremony. We thought it highly unlikely, but then Richard began to pale as the men changed out of their jeans and shirts into white ceremonial suits with long coloured headscarves wound around their heads, decorated with small pom-poms at the corners. We decided we'd better make our presence known before the ceremony got underway in case there were any objections to us being there. We sheepishly approached the Kiche group and addressed a family who had sat themselves at a slight distance from the rest. We asked if we could sit quietly and watch from a distance. They said yes, so we hunted for a discreet and shady spot. The main group was making preparations next to the stone circle and we positioned ourselves under a tree a fair distance away but with a clear view of the plaza. All the men except for the five leaders remained in western dress but as usual the women were in traditional dress. They spent some time arranging things they got out of a cardboard box and then got some incense burning in a censer. One of the leaders blessed the stone circle and gave it a preparatory sweep clean. The five leaders, each in a different headdress, then spent a while arranging bits and pieces out of small plastic bags in the middle of the circle. The rest of the group stood or sat around casually talking and laughing, with the exception of some women who we assumed were the leaders' wives, maybe. They stood next to the circle, watching the preparations and occasionally helping. We couldn't see what was being arranged in the centre until it was finished. It ended up being a low cone or pyramid of coloured candles, with one standing upright in the centre. We could see three different sections of the candle pyramid, which were made of white, yellow and green or blue candles. The central one was either blue or green, and we assumed that it was a representation of the cardinal directions with corresponding traditional colours. One of the leaders then passed something clockwise around the pile, but we couldn't see what. We were also unsure what had been so carefully arranged underneath the pile, incense. At one point it had looked like offerings of fruit, but we hadn't been able to see properly. We were very excited, our second Maya ceremony of the week, also totally unexpected, and again we were the only gringos present. He circled the pyramid with his hand in both directions, and one of the wives handed out to everyone a yellow candle. People gathered closer around the circle. The priest then talked to the group a while, and one of the other leaders swung the censer. Suddenly everyone knelt, facing what we would later work out to be east. This also corresponded with one of the ruined temples. The priests prayed, moving their hands, and everyone bowed forward to kiss the ground. Then the group turned to face the ruined temple on the west side and repeated the actions. They followed with south and then north. An amusing episode was when a small child tottered over during the prayers and picked up a carefully placed stick that was near the circle and waved it in the air. Another older child took it off her and tried to discreetly replace it in the same spot. The group then stood and lit the pyramid of candles, which grew to be a fire of impressive proportions. The priests took it in turns to swing the censer around the fire and repeatedly threw the flames. At this point, we also noticed a lot of smoke coming from behind us. We knew the last bus back to Chichicastenango left by mid-afternoon, and we wanted to see the tunnel, so we slipped away. We suspected that the smoke was coming from the entrance to the tunnel, and I was actually hoping that another ceremony wasn't going on in there, as I really wanted to see inside. Luckily, there were just three men sitting at the tunnel's entrance, and their fire was outside the tunnel. They were just casually chatting, so Richard asked them if we could go inside. They ushered us on past their almost extinct fire, and we lit our candles and plunged into the narrow but tall opening. It was very dark, but as we went further inside, we could make out various niches in the rock where candles were or had been placed. The walls were thick with soot and glistened with mysterious tiny droplets of clear liquid. At several points, side passages seemed to lead off the main tunnel, but they seemed to be shallow dead ends. The air was cold and dank, and I spotted a glow further along, candles burning right at the end of the tunnel, 
and a shrine strewn with flower petals, sugar, bread rolls and drinks containers. We retraced our steps through the strange dark tunnel and emerged just as the remnants of the men's fire swirled in a smoky whirlwind. The three men had gone and we had a little look around. Niches outside the tunnel also held candle remains and an incense sensor. And to top it all off, we also spied a severed chicken head on the ground nearby. We left the site extremely happy with our luck in stumbling across some ceremonies. The walk back into town was hellishly hot, but we felt like it had been well worth it. This section was written in Esteli on the 8th of May 2004. Once again, I've covered a lot of ground quite quickly and not had time to catch up with the writing. It's our first day in Nicaragua. We're very hot and very tired after crossing Honduras in one strenuous week. So here goes. Before we left Chichi Castanango, we still had one task to go to buy all our presents for folks back home at the famous market. It's not often that we give ourselves license to spend lots of money buying stuff, so we were pretty excited. We'd arrived on a Monday and the market had grown and grown every day through to Thursday, but we were still unprepared for how huge it turned out to be on Thursday morning, spreading out in every direction from the central plaza and swallowing up row after row of usually closed shops which suddenly were open and bustling with artisanias. The stuff on display was wonderful and the sheer volume of it plus the noises and smells made quite an intoxicating experience. However, the starting prices people quoted were always outrageous and we were unable to get the sellers to drop the prices as much as we'd hoped. For example, something we wanted to pay 50 quetzales for would be started at 300 and we were rarely able to get sellers to budge below a 50% drop, even though we'd been told ideally you could usually get things down to 25%. Still, we got all the presents we wanted within our budget, so we were happy. But it was quite galling to later visit artesania shops in Antigua, especially the most expensive place for artesanias, and find that we probably could have got more for our money. But the atmosphere of the market was also fun. There was more incense than usual on the church steps, and we saw a procession of men in traditional dress, carrying a firework bull through the market. That's a kind of, I think, yeah, like a cane sculpture, a cane structure in the shape of a bull with kind of like firework wheels on it. We later saw them again in the garden of the house next to our hotel, dancing and playing music in full costume. And a note in brackets, I've just remembered one final outing we had in Chichicastenango to the shrine of Pascual Abaj on a hill just outside town. It was a pleasant walk, except for climbing the hill itself, and the shrine was quite strange. In photos I've seen, the famous statue has a face of sorts, but the squat blackened stone that we saw had no recognisable features. It was surrounded by a stone circle forming an altar in front of it with several stone crosses, like this, and I've drawn a little cross shape. In front of the altar was another of the blackened circles, like we saw at... Oh my goodness, another pronunciation, Kumakash. That's the uh, archaeological site where we saw the ceremony happen. More short crosses were positioned around, forming an even larger circle. The altar was scattered with petals and other offerings of food. A nearby pile of chicken feathers indicated chicken sacrifice. We ate a picnic of yoghurt and granola and waited until 10, when a ceremony was meant to be taking place. An Irishman turned up also hopeful of seeing a ceremony and we chatted. Then two men climbed up onto the hill as well and began to burn incense at the altar. Our Irish friend went over to ask if we could watch. They didn't say no, but their manner wasn't exactly friendly. We hovered a little while at a distance and then left. It seemed weird anyway, there being only two of them and three tourists. From what we saw, they knelt in front of the shrine and prayed, and then one of the men passed something in a plastic bag over the other man's head as he remained kneeling. 
We returned to town and drank a coffee, swapping Central America stories before the Irishman headed off for Santa Cruz. Straight after buying all our presents at the market, we headed for Antigua. We probably could have got better discounts on our purchases if we'd waited until the stalls were closing, but we didn't want to spend another night in Gigi Castanango. The bus pulled into Antigua past a spectacular ruined church, and the city was just like everybody had said it would be, extremely pretty and extremely unlike the rest of the country. We felt as if we'd been suddenly transported back to Mexico to somewhere like Oaxaca. It felt very strange. We sat in the Zocalo and reminisced about Mexico. Zocalo is like a central square in a town. We spent our time in Antigua taking the odd photo, looking at artisanias, and one afternoon we watched Lost in Translation in one of the city's many small picture houses. Most of these are small rooms in restaurants or bars with a few sofas and a selection of videos on offer every day. It was all really nice. We also spent a day there getting stressed over the date change of our return flight to England. Our delight at finding an STA office turned into (laughs) Student Travel Association. I don't think that company exists anymore. It used to do um, low-priced travel for people under 25 or something. Um, Our delight at finding the office turned to irritation when we were told we wouldn't be getting our date change free of charge. The matter still isn't resolved, but some recent emails from STA have given us some hope. I think we'll have to pay for the change out here and then try and get a refund once we get back to England. I've also got an asterisk here saying, also in Antigua, staying in the back room of a shop. Okay, yeah, don't remember very much about this except that we managed to get um, a room to rent that, yeah, was in the back of a shop. We arose early for our journey across the border into Honduras, which was a tiring haul involving several changes of bus. We had to change in Guatemala City, but luckily it only involved walking about four blocks through what must be one of the grimmest cities in the world. We were crammed onto an already full first-class bus and given a small plastic stool to sit on in the aisle. Several more people were crammed on, standing up, and it was the first time we got to see the amusing thing that happens whenever these illegally full first-class buses pass a police or army checkpoint. The driver yells and all the standing passengers have to crouch down. (laughs) The border crossing itself was a small-scale affair, and within no time we were again crammed into a ridiculously full minibus heading for the Honduran town of Copan Rinas. We chatted briefly on the minibus to an English-speaking Guatemalan missionary, then exited and were shown to a hotel by a little boy. It was the first room with a private bathroom that we'd had in ages. It was a little too expensive, but we were tired and we took it. A parrot downstairs said, hello, and burrito every time someone passed by. We rested up a bit and then headed into town for a takeaway pizza treat. There were one or two hitches. After waiting 30 minutes for it to be cooked, we returned only to find that the young boy, who seemed to be in charge, hadn't started it yet. We need some money to buy cheese, he explained. Perhaps foolishly we decided to wait, and he eventually emerged with a very nice pizza for us. As we were carrying it back to the hotel, a woman came charging up to us. I was taken aback at first, but it turned out to be Elizabeth from El Mirador, and Erwan followed. It was our second random meeting since El Mirador, and it turned out that we were all heading for the town of Gracias after Copan. Yeah, when I say it was our second random meeting, I realised that I hadn't actually mentioned in the journal um, the first time we met them again, completely by chance, in um, the small town where we were staying on the shore of Lake Atitlan, where we did some Spanish tuition and where we weren't very well. Um, we'd also just bumped into them there and I remember we were carrying I was carrying a pineapple 
by the top part by the leaves and as we were chatting to them in the street really excited to see each other I just remember the bottom part of the pineapple falling off <laughs> onto, the, onto the street I remember that so completely by chance we'd bumped into them there and then we've bumped into them again so it turned out we were all heading for the town of Gracias after Copan. We would arrive the day after them, and we all wanted to hike in Salaque National Park. We parted determined to meet in a couple of days, but without making any definite plans as such. Gracias was a very small place, so we hoped we might just find each other again. The next morning we were up early to visit our final Maya ruin. Having read Incidents of Travel, which is a series of books, I think it might be two uh, volumes written by a very early kind of English... It was two guys that were travelling together. One was English, one was American. And they were among the first uh, Westerners to kind of see some of these Maya ruins when they were completely unrestored. I think the Englishman, uh, Frederick Catherwood, was the illustrator. He was documenting all the sites they came across uh, by drawing them. And John Lloyd Stevens was the uh, man who wrote about it all. They're very kind of well-known travel accounts... I'm just going to quickly Google when they were written. So they were travelling in the mid-1800s, and I seem to remember they had some involvement as well in trying to scout out locations for a possible Panama Canal uh, very early on in that procedure. The books are actually called Incidents of Travel in Yucatan, Volumes 1 and 2, and Incidents of Travel in Central America, Chiapas and Yucatan, Volumes 1 and 2. Having read Incidents of Travel very early on in the trip, we were pretty excited about it. We walked out of town for a kilometre, passing some replica stelae and numerous cowboys. Honduras so far seemed to be full of men in jeans, checked shirts and cowboy hats riding horses. It was a little like the north of Mexico again. We entered the archaeological site, which was set in a lovely patch of jungle, and had some pet scarlet macaws, the national bird of Honduras, at the gate. They were huge, cheeky and the brightest primary colours you've ever seen. But as usual, it was kind of sad to see birds kept as pets. We headed straight for the hieroglyphic stairway, an incredible stone staircase with hieroglyphics along every step, and sculptures of various anthropomorphic creatures placed at intervals. An ornate stella and altar were at the front of the staircase. It was truly amazing to see these famous sculptures at first hand and up close. The detail was staggering. Every figure had an ornate headdress and costume swirling with feathers, jewellery and patterns. The sides of the stella usually featured complex designs of animals or small figures and the backs were usually covered in double columns of hieroglyphs. There wasn't all that much to see in the way of architecture, although the enormous stairways and raised platforms leave you in no doubt that it was a city of enormous scale and grandeur. In places the sculpture was pretty dark and terrifying, featuring mouths, teeth, snakes, etc., Half-human, half-monster figures crouching in spider-like positions formed large altars. On some of the stelae, remains of original paint could be seen. All in all, the site was very aesthetically presented, parts of most structures left in ruins and parts restored, parts of the forest cleared away and parts left artfully entwined with the rubble. By midday, it was very hot, and we retreated to Copan town just as hordes of school kids arrived. Later in the day, we tried to walk to La Sepultura's site, another 2k down the road, but a worker from there stopped us on the way to tell us that it was closed. Lonely Planet was wrong by an hour on the opening hours. We had wanted to see it as it was included in our ticket price, which incidentally was so high that we couldn't afford the separate entrance fee to Copan's Sculpture Museum. But the worker told us we could use our ticket to enter La Sepultura's the next morning, which we did. It was a small site comprising of some wealthy living quarters that had been excavated. 
The buildings were also very regular in size and shape, so much so that they made us think of luxury condos or apartments. Many had original stucco remaining inside. The most interesting had some striking stucco sculpture intact. After visiting Las Sepulturas, we got on a bus headed for Gracias. Transport in Honduras was more expensive than in Guatemala and was turning out to be painfully slow. We eventually reached the small town of Gracias, where a few roads were paved and there were some atmospheric, crumbling colonial buildings. There were mules in the streets and war men in cowboy gear. Our trip through the Honduran countryside had shown us some gorgeous, unspoiled mountains and forest, and lots of cows, the kind with the hump and the huge ears. The first hotel we tried was incredibly expensive, and it was the cheapest listed in Lonely Planet. The woman in charge tried to tell us there were no cheaper rooms in town, but to her annoyance and our gratitude, her husband piped up that there was a cheap place down the road. (laughs) We took a room in a dodgy-looking place with rooms surrounding a car park. Our room had wild, damp designs on the walls and woodworm in the ceiling, which showered one of the beds with sawdust. But we were now resigned to our tight budget. The next morning, we walked to the local hot springs, first following an unfinished highway and then following some convoluted paths through woods and small farms where we got lost several times and had to ask directions. When we reached the springs, they turned out to be nicer than we'd hoped, although not as stunning as the ones at Fuentes Georginas. That's the place where we stayed overnight um, and where there were bats. There were several pools and although I was a bit intimidated at first being the only female around, we were soon in the water and we're delighted to find the water even hotter than at Georginus. There were trees all around and even the odd grazing cow. Pretty soon loads of school kids turned up but they turned out to be perfectly polite even moving my shoes for me when they were in danger of getting wet. We headed back to town to try and make some final arrangements for our hike. The plan was to spend two days hiking in Salake National Park, but transportation to the park was very expensive and our only real chance of getting it cheaper was to find other walkers to team up with. But we were fairly resigned to paying the full whack if we had to. The first day's hike was tough enough from the park entrance to the encampment Don Tomas without adding 7k to the start of it by walking there. We bought supplies, food, water, candles, film for the camera... I made an arrangement to rent two sleeping bags from the people at Hotel Juan Cascos. Okay, I think I'm going to leave the episode there. Uh, Tune in next week to find out whether we burn all of our funds getting to the Selake National Park or whether we get lucky and find some other hikers to share a pickup with. Thank you for listening. As I always say, you can see uh, photos that I took on this journey on my social media. I'm posting a small number of pictures and a sketchbook page or two to go with each episode. Um, And you can see those on my Twitter and my Instagram. You can also find out more about my work, my uh, comics and my books and things at my website, katrinachapman.com. Thanks. Bye.